Hello, and welcome to Wisdom of the Crowd, a podcast miniseries brought to you by the Bertelsmann Foundation, Bertelsmann Stiftung, and Are We Europe? I'm your host, Riley Munn, and in this second episode, we take a look at the state of global democracy. Our guests on the show today are Ambassador Derek Mitchell, the current president of the National Democratic Institute, and the former U.S. ambassador to Myanmar, also known as Burma, from 2012 to 2016, and Mark Thompson, director of the Southeast Asia Research Center at the City University of Hong Kong, and an expert on Southeast Asian governance. In this episode, we get their views on democratic decline, specifically honing in on Southeast Asia as a regional case study. We'll hear about a range of government structures, from the benevolent dictator model in Singapore to the military junta in Myanmar, asking ourselves, why is democracy worth fighting for? And is it really better than other models? Without further ado, let's get into it. In the past decade, according to Our World in Data, the number of electoral democracies has dwindled from 97 in 2012 to 89 in 2022. Today, only 2.3 billion of the world's people live in a fully functioning democracy with all of the rights that come with that. That's only one quarter of the world, meaning three quarters of the world's population do not live in a democracy. A variety of factors have contributed to democratic backsliding income inequality, political polarization, the rise of populist leaders, and identity politics have all played a critical role. Social media has also contributed to democratic deterioration in countries like the United States, Hungary, Poland, India, Brazil, the list goes on. And then there's the COVID-19 pandemic, which gave leaders and citizens a moment to reassess the landscape. It was a trial by fire that measured which type of system was better equipped to tackle real issues that impacted everyone on the planet. In the early days, Western democracies fumbled their way through managing waves of disinformation and healthcare systems on the brink of collapse, while China, despite obscuring the origins of the pandemic, moved quickly to lock down their country and exported medical equipment to countries struggling to contain the virus. This rekindled an age-old debate between systems and ideas. For all the lofty rhetoric of democracy, could it keep people fed, healthy, and safe? If you're listening and interested in giving your take on this question, head over to Range, our transatlantic forecasting platform, where users and experts can chime in on the likelihood of future events happening. Currently, there are a number of democracy questions ready for forecasting on Range, looking at the outcome of the upcoming elections in Turkey or the possibility of a coup in Moldova. Forecast today at rangeforecasting.org. Our first guest, Mark R. Thompson, is here to help us explore different models of governance. Mark is the director of the Southeast Asia Research Center at the City University of Hong Kong and an expert on government systems in Southeast Asia. He is the author of numerous books on authoritarianism and democratization in Southeast Asia, such as The Anti-Marcos Struggle, Democratic Revolutions, Asia and Eastern Europe, and Authoritarian Modernism in East Asia. So Mark, welcome to the show. I'm just going to go right ahead and ask, what's going on with democracy in Southeast Asia? Give us the good, the bad, and the ugly. So in Southeast Asia, my the area I know most about, there's been a kind of landslide of uh, democratic backsliding, uh, most uh, notably the military coup in Thailand in 2014 and then in Myanmar uh, in 2021, which has led to um, some shocking scenes of uh, soldiers firing on uh, peaceful protesters and uh, now a civil war breaking out. 
Uh, the Philippines and Indonesia have undergone a more subtle process of what uh, scholars like to call executive aggrandizement, presidents who are aggrandizing power. It was Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines after his election in 2016 and President Joko Widodo in Indonesia since about 2017-18. And then in Cambodia, we've had a, a process of deepening autocratization uh, there with the kind of possible good news stories in terms of uh, democratic developments in Malaysia and Timor-Leste, although I think both cases it's really too early to say how if those uh, can be sustained. And last and, and most promising for the uh, proponents of, of democratic governance would be Northeast Asia, where you have a stable and flourishing democracy, that I, flourishing democracies, I think it's fair to say, in, in South Korea and Taiwan. You have, of course, China becoming more autocratic over, over the last decade. South Korea and Taiwan in particular stand out as uh, success stories uh, in terms of uh, democratic governance in the region. The response to the COVID-19 pandemic sparked a global debate about whether authoritarian or democratic governments were more effective in dealing with crises. How did you view that particular discussion? And what should be our takeaway for future crises? I mean, China was long considered a success story with uh, China's very strict COVID-19 policy. They managed to avoid that uh, for the better part of three years, but then they opened up very quickly and the consequences were rapid spread of the disease, and although we don't know yet how many people died, it was surely quite substantial. Vietnam has a very similar political system to China's uh, one-party communist rule, but in many ways it did better than China in part because it was more flexible. Uh, so you had kind of the advantages of strong centralized control, but also uh, greater flexibility. There are two countries that stand out for not doing very well in Southeast Asia. That's the Philippines and Indonesia. In the Philippines is a case I've studied most carefully. You had kind of the worst of both worlds. You had a very strict lockdown, but but not a very effective governance strategy to cope with the problems of a, of a severe lockdown. And you had a rise in hunger. You had a severe economic downturn. You had people being arrested for, for violating quarantine. So I think it's it's a very mixed record. And I'm not sure I would point to regime type as crucial. It was more the, the question of governance, the ability to, to deal with the pandemic in terms of uh, hospital infrastructure, but also uh, the willingness to adapt, right? Adapt to, to to changes in the pandemic. And everybody was improvising uh, before vaccines were available. And once vaccines became available, how you got people to 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 take the vaccines uh, so that, you know, when the various variants spread through the population, the, particularly the older and uh, those with pre-existing conditions could, could be better protected. So um, I would look at those factors uh, more than regime types in assessing overall pandemic performance. It is sometimes argued that authoritarian regimes have better systems of governance due to the absolute political power that they wield. And according to some theorists, the optimal autocratic structure is that of a benevolent dictator, that is, an authoritarian leader who controls the state with the ultimate good of the people in mind. People often point to Singapore as the closest thing to a benevolent dictator model of governance. As you've previously written, Mark, the Singapore model is one that is particularly attractive to China. Can you talk about the positives and negatives of this system and whether the Singapore model is replicable in China at all or anywhere else beyond this small city-state? You're right when you say a lot of countries have looked at the Singapore model throughout Asia, but even beyond. Uh, there is even a little interest in the Singapore model and Thatcher's UK and, and in the Tory party beyond that. So it's not just in Asia that the Singapore model has been a source of a fascination and kind of a kind of a capitalist fantasy, free markets, although that's not the reality of Singapore, 
uh, but also, of course, uh, for China, the idea that here is a fast-growing economy with a, uh, an honest bureaucracy, low corruption, meritocracy, Asian values uh, rather than Western-style democracy. And so that's a model that China could look to. While developing rapidly, they could also maintain uh, you know, one-party rules. I should add the Singaporeans were very interested in helping the mainlanders with their learning process and even set up the so-called mayor's program at, at one Singapore university where local uh, officials or and sometimes high, more high-ranking ones could come to Singapore and, and actually learn about Singapore firsthand in the country itself. And so the lessons drawn were, were that Singapore is a modern, it's an efficient system, it's a kind of benevolent dictatorship that while rejecting a Western-style democracy retains its uh, Chinese cultural heritage, and it involves a, a strong state, but a, but but a state that that is not prone to corruption, and can still consult with society, uh, and can therefore be kept in a direction that leads to efficiency and a legitimacy. It can legitimize itself as truly representing uh, the people's interest, and so that was a reformist path. A very pragmatic one that that was very suitable to, to to the Chinese leadership. And in the case of the Singapore model, uh, the government and 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 others involved in this outreach to, to to mainland observers and mayors and so on was was also also willing to sort of give them a story that 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 interested them that did not emphasize, shall we say, the, the differences between China and Singapore, which uh, became obvious obviously after a passage of time to the mainland observers as well. The more they knew about Singapore, the more, more they realized. How, how very different it was. So no, I don't think the Singapore model actually is very transferable. That's very relevant. But uh, I think it's still interesting that China, uh, for the better part of two decades, uh, saw it as its major uh, model for economic and, and political reforms. During the Trump era in the United States, there was an apparent contagion effect that saw populists with illiberal tendencies gain power around the globe. Has this fever broken or does this trend still persist? So the U.S. is a highly polarized society, and Trumpism had the disadvantage uh, from a political perspective uh, for the Republicans of making them even more of a political minority. They were losing elections, at least in the popular vote, consistently to Democrats uh, for decades, George Bush's uh, election 2004 being an exception after 9-11. So that's the dilemma, and also perhaps the hope, if you're taking a a democratic perspective is that in the U.S. context, a liberal populism has led to the Republican Party to pay a rather high political price in terms of losing elections. And if Trump is the nominee, again, I think they're likely to pay it uh, one more time and also at the state levels. So that's that's an interesting point. And that differs from, as I said, a case where in the Philippines where, you know, this uh, democratic liberalism has has flourished and you know, it's, it's going into its, its second presidency now under Ferdinand Marcos uh, Jr. And then if you look around globally, you, you get illiberal populist leaders that have this broader support uh, and others that also are struggling uh, in a highly polarized society. So Orban uh, wound up uh, winning the last election, but but the opposition was stronger than than it had been previously. Turkey seems, seems very evenly divided at the moment, and Erdogan is, is surely uh, worried about the forthcoming election. As I mentioned, at BFNA, we're all about taking a forward-looking approach because we run a forecasting platform. So I'd love to ask you, what is the current pulse, in your opinion, of democracy in Southeast Asia? And do you see that changing in the next five years? One case I haven't talked about, which is worth uh, mentioning, is Thailand. So in Thailand, there has been a tremendous pushback against the military coup of 2014, 
it was there from the very beginning. There were so-called flash mob protests, uh, particularly by young people. But also the uh, political party of the former prime minister, Thaksin, never went away. And now that elections are going to be held again, likely in May, uh, it looks like it will emerge as the strongest party, as it was in in many of the elections in in the 2000s. Having experienced military governance and, and, and the problems that involves have have shifted back toward this typical civilian coalition against uh, the monopoly of uh, power by the military. So you see an alliance between the former middle class forces that tended to be hostile to Taksin and uh, the Taksin forces themselves. It's not a formal coalition, but uh, they're both pushing back against the regime. Parties representing these various social and political forces are likely to do well in the next election. So that's, I think, a positive sort. Myanmar is very interesting because of the ferocious pushback, uh, first uh, in terms of civilian peaceful protests, and then when that was impossible because of the massacres, now this nation's civil war, and without without sufficient arms and so on, of course, it seems hard to predict what will happen. But it is you know, interesting how that pushback has been so strong. And there's no question that the military has, if not literally, then certainly politically shot itself in the foot. And I think the problems that you see in China point to the fact that the authoritarian model that people thought was, you know, so effective in terms of bringing growth and managing crises that 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 was not uh, quite what people once thought would would be. Then the final factor of this course is how does the geopolitical situation play out? Uh, and I think that's the gravest concern that, you know, this, this growing tension between the U.S. and China will affect th- this region very strongly. And of course, any sort of military conflict would be disastrous uh, economically for the whole region. And the region, you know, particularly Southeast Asia, doesn't really want to choose between China and the U.S. They love doing business w- with China. They would uh, like the U.S. to stay as a military counterbalance. But that hedging or balancing, as it's uh, called, uh, is proving more difficult these days. So that that is another aspect of, of the future of political developments in the region. And then just one final question that we ask all our guests. When you look around the globe, what is something that keeps you up at night? Yeah, that's what's keeping me up at night at the moment is the uh, China-US tensions. And But I think another aspect that we have to see is how these great power transitions all often involve a, a competition of political systems, right? So the rise of Imperial Germany, as a challenge to uh, parliamentary uh, uh, UK, parliamentary Britain, uh, Meiji Japan uh, as a uh, military regime rising in in Asia in in the interwar period, Uh, and now China with its authoritarian model uh, rising, not just in Asia, but globally. All the advantages of globalization and the rise of Asia seem to be at risk because of these uh, geopolitical tensions and the system competition. I mean, the other point is, of course, in hindsight, the the Cold War was a very asymmetric conflict because of the relative weakness of the Soviet Union economically. But that is not the case. And I think that those who predict that, you know, China will somehow, you know, run out of steam economically because it faces these demographic problems, it faces the the housing debt crisis and, and so on and so forth. While that is true, they, they tend to under, under, underestimate China's strengths, particularly in terms of innovation and upgrading. And, uh, and there's so many industries, if you look very carefully, Chinese companies are at the forefront. And even if the West starts uh, trying to withhold technology, I don't think there's any stopping uh, the rise of China economically, perhaps slowing a bit, but, but certainly not stopping it.
Our second guest on the show today is Derek Mitchell, president of the National Democratic Institute, or NDI. He's had a long and storied career as a U.S. diplomat, serving as the U.S. ambassador to Myanmar from 2012 to 2016. He's here to make the case for why democracy is truly the most effective form of governance, including in the region he specializes in, which is Southeast Asia. My background primarily has been as an Asianist. Uh, I worked at the Pentagon twice on Asia policy and uh, the State Department as the U.S. ambassador to Myanmar for uh, just under four years. I was there during the opening, the liberalization period. I first was an envoy. We didn't have an ambassador for 22 years because of the political situation in the country, the coup from by the military and then the repressive aftermath of the 1988 coup. Uh, so for 22 years, no ambassador. I became uh, a special envoy of the Obama administration to test whether they might be interested in a new path forward, um, a more liberalized path forward. And in fact, they demonstrated they were interested. We saw the civil society uh, liberalized, the media freed up, uh, real debates, uh, exciting dynamics inside the country, and a hope that they had turned a corner towards a path of democracy. Uh, they even had elections in 2015 that allowed for the famed democracy leader Aung San Suu Kyi to gain essential leadership of the country, though not entire leadership because the military still retained power under the constitution. So it was a time of hope, it was a time of optimism, but also a time of realism that the constitution that favored the military did not change. Mindsets did not change. Uh, those things happened much more slowly. Asia has seen a volatile period in the rise and fall of democratic governance in recent years. How do you see the current state of democracy in the region? Democracy isn't a, a straight line. Democracies and political governance rolls forward and back. Um, and the struggle between those who want to control and those who want their freedom and dignity, glory of the state versus the dignity of the individual, that struggle will go on forever. But I see enormous energy in Asia, as I see around the world, in favor of the democratic idea. Success story in Asia, you just look at Taiwan, uh, look at Korea. Back, say, 30 years ago, uh, they were coming out of, or 35 years ago, coming out of martial law, coming out of military dominance, a uh, one-party state. And they now are some of the strongest democracies in the world. Um, Taiwan is a leading democracy in, in the world, as The Economist and others have, have marked. So we do see success stories. We saw an evolution in Indonesia. They are backsliding, of course, and they are, they are rolling back a bit. Um, again, in Burma and Myanmar, we had hope, and they have now reverted to military dictatorship that even went beyond where it was, say, 15 years ago, which is extremely tragic. You mentioned Myanmar was liberalizing during your period as ambassador there. So where did it go wrong? What explains the political crises plaguing the country today? Burma, in the old days, was the rice bowl of Asia. It was never fully stable. They were always sort of fought among themselves. They have multiple ethnic groups. Uh, and what has held that country together historically has been a centralizing force, for better or for worse. It was imperial uh, force back in the 19th century and before. One ethnic group or another would hold the place by force because of some um, military king, as it were. Then it was colonialism, British colonialism. Uh, and then it was military dictatorship. They they played with democracy in the 50s after independence from the British in 1948. But um, then the military decided the only thing that can hold this place together in the midst of a, a vast civil war with some of the ethnic minorities was their centralized control. 
Uh, so by the late 80s, it was one of the 10 least developed countries in the world. And I think they recognized that over time, they were isolated by U.S. sanctions, by international sanctions, um, and they were drifting to uh, under Chinese you know, influence. So I think they opened up because they wanted a good relationship with the United States. They wanted to be a proud nation in Southeast Asia. They saw they were falling behind. And so when I was envoy and reached out, they had a quasi-transition. It was not a real transition, but a quasi-civilian transition in 2010, 2011. They seemed ready to uh, to work with us on a path to reform. So they did all the things I had said earlier, which is things like uh, freeing the media, allowing civil society to flourish, releasing political prisoners, opening the political system to opposition parties, and even having a, a, a election in 2015 that led to the turnover of power to the longtime Democratic opposition party, the National League for Democracy, under Aung San Suu Kyi. And how did the military react to this Democratic election? And they found uh, when Aung San Suu Kyi took over and when 2015 happened, that uh, the people didn't want them. And Aung San Suu Kyi, she uh, outmaneuvered them. And I think they, they found that to be a, a real threat, particularly the commander in chief who was quite insecure. He was preparing to retire in 2021 or so, uh, 2020, 2021. And I think he felt threatened. And the military forces may have felt they can get away with a coup. That just like Thailand in 2014, there'd be a coup, there'd be a lot of uproar inside the country, maybe outside. But over time, just give it a year or so and things would settle down. They can you know, close some of the loopholes of the Constitution that uh, they didn't realize were, were loopholes, and then move forward based on, on that. And they just didn't realize that the 10 years of opening had led to an entirely different mindset among the young people, that their ambitions and aspirations and hopes and dreams were unleashed. And they were just not willing to go back to the old days of repression and control and military dictatorship. So they are fighting uh, tooth and nail. I mean, just fighting to the end for their rights. They're not going to give up. They're tired of the military. Unfortunately, it means the country itself is descending into failed state status of, of uh, underdevelopment and, and violence. But it's sort of what I call a domestic version of Ukraine. It's um, an invasion of sorts. It just happens to be invasion from within against freedom where people have felt that they, uh, they've tasted democracy, they tasted freedom, and they're not giving it up. And they're going to fight to the end to preserve it, which shows you again just how powerful the democratic idea is out there, even though it is under attack from forces from without and from within. Do you believe Myanmar is part of a larger trend of democratic decline? I don't think democracy is in decline. I think democracy is under attack. So it is emblematic of a trend of democracy being attacked, uh, whether it's from within by military forces or by demagogic forces or by other forces that, that want to prey on fear and, and insecurity in order to assume power. I see the energy of democracy quite strong. Now, there are places around the world where democracy hasn't delivered according to people's expectations, and therefore people get frustrated by it. People, as Madeleine Albright, who was chair of NDI, uh, used to say uh, that people want to vote and eat. <laughs> so. You, know, you have to deliver. People want, fundamentally, they want a job, they want development, they want education. So if they're not getting it from one political system, they will look to others. 
it ultimately delivers better than any other system. And we can talk about the few exceptions. People focus on those few exceptions, like look at Singapore or look at China or something like that. But they're few and far between. Every study suggests that democracies deliver better on health, education, uh, development, peace outcomes. Of course, Myanmar isn't the only country where the attack on democracy came from within. Looking at Trump's presidency in the U.S., a similar picture emerges. So how can we ensure that we protect democracy from these internal attacks? We have to be engaged. Democracy is only as strong as the people make it within a society. We have to understand our rights. We have to understand how we engage with one another. We have to do our homework. We have to be engaged citizens. Citizenship is a job. The United States leads, whether we like it or not. Uh, and we can lead in a negative direction, or we can lead in a positive direction. People will look to us oftentimes as a model of one or the other. So when Trump was was essentially modeling illiberalism around the world, when he was leaning more towards Putin than he was to to uh, you know democracies globally, to Ukraine, for instance, it was imperfect democracy, but you know, he's making threats to Zelensky. That sent a signal to the world that it was okay to be like that. It was okay to denigrate minorities or to uh, denigrate the media and call them the enemy of the people. We have to recognize that we self-corrected from that, but we, the, the job isn't over and we have to strengthen our own democracy in, in order that we can, we can help strengthen others and frankly, strengthen a more secure world as a result. What would it mean for global democracy if Trump is reelected? First of all, people don't struggle for their rights because of America. So the, the Burmese, the Ukrainians, they're not saying, well, because America has trouble with its democracy, then, you know, the struggle's over. And all. So I think people are fighting for themselves. Um, they, when they see things like January 6th or they see things like Trump, I think there's some disheartened feeling. I think we do inspire others when our democracy is working. And they can point to that and say, okay, I see a model that we can aspire to. So therefore, let's keep going. And they feel the U.S. is on their side. But they're not going to stop fighting you know, if America is not strong. That said, America, the power of America, the resources we have matter enormously. And I think it will, if, if those resources are not turned towards supporting democratic forces around the world, and they seem to show a different model, it would be it would send a shockwave, I think, to people everywhere and embolden dictators. That is extremely worrisome. And I think it will have an impact, not just on our values, not just because we believe people should have a voice and be free and there should be separation of powers, all of that. But I think for our security, it's going to make for a world that is uh, less developed, less just, uh, and more likely to have wars. So... Why then is democracy worth fighting for? Well, I think benevolent dictators are very few. Uh, I think it's human nature, unfortunately, and I think uh, there have been philosophers who have said this, that, that uh, if, if human beings were angels, it was James Madison, then we wouldn't need to have government. But without oversight, without accountability, you will have abusive power. Without transparency, you will have corruption. And that will create resentment and frustration. You'll have instability inside countries, and that ripples across borders. Democracy, by every measure, delivers on what people are looking for. People want a better development outcome, better health outcome, better educational outcome, better peace outcomes, getting more voices, getting people engaged, having people invested in that. that that's the way 
That's the way you get results. So democracy matters. I think even those in Singapore are fighting you know, for that. And we saw in China, uh, the Chinese people are now, once they realize the full implication of uh, the repression, they came out late last year uh, and the so-called white paper movement where they, they said, we don't believe in this dictatorship. We don't want to live in this Orwellian Xi Jinping world. Uh, and they're voting with their feet. Those who, who can leave are leaving. The entrepreneurs are leaving. Those with money are leaving. Uh, that's the quiet story of China. That yes, they did an amazing job of developing themselves over these decades with the help of international investment. But without democracy, you have this abuse of power with this turn towards a repressive state. People uh, who can are saying, this is not for me, it is not human. And I really do believe that it is fundamentally human to want democracy in a society. Now for a bonus question that we ask all our guests, because again, as I said, we're doing kind of a forward-looking forecasting model with this podcast. When you look around the globe, what is something that keeps you up at night? We've talked about it. What keeps me up at night is us, um, is the return of a Trump, uh, return of uh, of an illiberal leadership that undermines um, America and the world and undermines our own system in fundamental ways that will set us way back. Uh, I fear for that because there is, uh, because our democracy isn't strong. The answer to a failing democracy or democracy that's weak is not less democracy, it's a, it's a better democracy. Uh, and what we have in the United States is a democracy that's gotten weak, democracy that doesn't speak for people throughout the society, who isn't listening, people in the heartland are recognized that those who, have been left, those who have been left behind need to be heard. If the United States moves in that direction, I think the world is in deep trouble. And it's very difficult to reverse once it starts. It is very difficult. We dodged a bullet in 2020, but that bullet is circling. And if we do it again, thinking it won't be so bad, we may find ourselves uh, in a desperate situation in our democracy in ways that we never, ever could have expected. That brings us to the end of our second episode of Wisdom of the Crowd. Thank you again to our guests, Derek Mitchell and Mark Thompson, for sharing their views on the state of democracy around the world. In the next episode, we'll be exploring the topic of technology. We'll discuss in which direction tech policy is evolving and how it will impact the transatlantic relationship, and tackle questions such as, what are both sides of the Atlantic doing about the rise of AI and ChatGPT? What's the impact of Europe's general data protection regulation, known as GDPR, on American companies? And is the EU-US Trade and Technology Council a good mechanism for resolving transatlantic disputes? More broadly, with help from our guest experts, we'll answer the million-dollar question. Can the US and EU see eye-to-eye -eye when it comes to tech policy, or are we destined to move further apart in the near future? We hope you'll join us for that discussion. In the meantime, don't forget to check out Range. Range is a crowdsourced forecasting platform focused on issues critical to the transatlantic relationship like China policy, climate change, technology, democracy, geopolitics, trade, and economics. Wisdom of the Crowd is produced by the Bertelsmann Foundation, the Bertelsmann Stiftung, Are We Europe, and Awe Studio. Sound design for this episode was done by Stefano Montali with editing by Kirill Hartog. Research was done by Daniela Rojas Medina and Anthony Silberfeld. The podcast artwork is by Tamara Tosic, and this series is hosted by me, Riley Munn. Make sure to subscribe so you can stay tuned for upcoming episodes. If you like this podcast, then take a look at Bridging the Atlantic, 
another podcast produced by the Bertelsmann Foundation and Are We Europe, where we tackle important transatlantic issues. See you next time.